And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Robert Moffat. He's Senior Fellow in Domestic Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Bob, it's great to have you on with us today. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be with you. You had an article in the Daily Signal. The title was, New Study Shows Huge Cost of Sanders' Medicare for All Plan. And that caught my eye, and uh, I thought maybe we could have a discussion about that today. The first sentence is, socialism is expensive. So maybe you can uh, share with our listeners what's on your mind. Well, I think what we're talking about here is a... uh you're talking about $32.6 trillion over 10 years. Uh, so you're talking about you know $3.2 trillion each year. Right now, the budget of the entire federal government is roughly between three and $3.4 and $3.6 trillion. So <clears throat> we're talking about basically doubling the budget. Uh, you're talking about very, very heavy taxes. Um, the Blay House study, which I referred to, uh, which is the study done by the former Medicare trustee, Charles Blayhouse does not actually have a specific tax number in it, but uh, previous estimates indicate that uh, taxes uh, to support a program of this size would um, go to maybe 20% of payroll, and that about 70% of all working Americans would be paying more for health care under the Sanders proposal than they pay today. So we're looking at very, very large uh, increases in both the federal income tax and also payroll taxes. You know, what struck me, too, is the fact that our national debt, I don't know what the latest number is, somewhere around $21 trillion. $21 Yeah, I mean, this, um, this extra expenditure here that Sanders wants us to, to do is larger than our national debt. Uh, over ten years, and and so yeah. that that was one it's only ten years too. Yeah, only ten years, and that was that was just a blatant in-your-face fact. Um, where does Mister Sanders believe that he'll get this money from? Well, he outlined in his proposal a whole series of different taxes uh, to do it. Uh, he has an eleven point five percent payroll tax plus. On top of that, he has a number of other taxes, uh, primarily taxes on upper-income persons, taxes uh, on investments and uh, and uh, investment spending and uh, stock market investments and so on, um, a whole gaggle of different taxes on top of that. He's also got a multimillionaire's tax. So he's got, a, as I say, a whole grab bag of taxes. Plus, of course, the big ones, which are the the payroll tax, uh, the eleven point five percent payroll tax, which it's a it's a combination of a payroll and an income tax. Um, that's a lot. I mean, uh, right now we pay twelve point was it twelve point four percent in the Social Security tax. So <clears throat> you're talking about basically doubling the existing wow. payroll tax. Plus, on top of that, you're also looking at other taxes as well. These are huge tax increases, uh, nothing like anything Americans have ever seen before. Now, the argument is uh, that we'll get better care. But I thought one of the most revealing findings of the the Blayhouse report is that there would be significant savings. But those savings, uh, according to Blayhouse, 
would come from a 40% reduction over 10 years in payment to doctors and others, hospitals and other medical professionals. Oh. Now, that is a very, very big cut in professional reimbursement for an entire profession and as well as the medical community. Uh, I don't know if you could do anything like that. In fact, Blayhouse doesn't say one way or the other how that will actually work out. But you will get savings under this. There's no question about it. But those savings are going to come, in my opinion, that will come at a reduction in your access to care. Because, frankly, just a lot of these institutions would not be able to function with that kind of reimbursement reduction. Yes, and um, there was another factor that you mentioned and that is the Sanders bill would create a national health insurance program and it would prohibit all Americans from having yeah. a private or employer-based health insurance plan. That's a powerful that's right. phrase, prohibit. Well, that's what it is, yeah. That means make it illegal for you to, to have a private plan. Yeah, the Sanders bill is very, very clear about this. Um, it basically abolishes all private health insurance in the sense that it has 10 categories of benefits, which are all major medical benefits, and no private plan can offer those same benefits. Only the government can offer those benefits. You might be able to get, for example, a private plan that covers something you know that is not covered by the government. In other words, uh, extraordinary medical services that the government plan won't cover. But in terms of you know what we know today as private insurance, which is, you know, you get your doctors and hospital coverage and prescription drugs and all that, uh, all that would be eliminated. There would be no uh, private health insurance permitted. Uh, it would be against the law uh, to have private insurance. Yeah. So the other thing that I thought was interesting is that Medicare and Medicaid and, and the existing SCHIP program, the Children's Health Insurance Program, they would be abolished too. He calls it Medicare for all, but traditional Medicare will be abolished and uh, the functions of the Medicare program will be absorbed by the new National Health Insurance Program. So that's what you're looking at. Uh, this is a, a root and branch government basically takeover of the entire healthcare system. Yeah, over the over the head of this, my brain keeps going to the word slavery, and uh, I, I see that uh, we are becoming more and more slaves of the state as something like this is pushed down our throats. I, I happen to agree with you. I, uh, when the government basically controls, you know, what we're talking about here is about 20% of the economy, and that's, it'll be that very shortly. It'll be 20% of the economy. It's 18% now, uh, plus uh, the level of taxation that's going to be required. I mean, basically, in effect, you will have a, a situation where most of your life will actually be governed by uh, politicians and bureaucrats. Uh, it's not going to be, you're not going to be independent. Well, that, that to me is very scary, especially when they outlaw uh, having a private health insurance. And also, um, you started off saying that this is $32.6 trillion over 10 years. And also, you point out that the Urban Institute, which is a respected liberal think tank, estimated the cost to be $32 trillion. So this is a large number um, verified by multiple sources. Yeah, that's that's right. I know the Urban Institute analysts very well, uh, John Hollihan and Linda Blumberg and, and uh, those folks. Um, these are mostly liberal academics, but they're extremely competent, 
And they did that a couple of years ago. And what I thought was significant about the Blayhouse study that just came out is that it basically tracks in large measure what the Urban Institute had come out with two years ago. So this is not some kind of pie-in-the-sky number. This is a very, very well-thought-out econometric you know, uh, projection. This yeah. is very serious stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know Blayhouse personally. He is a former trustee of the Medicare program. He had responsibility for for that program. Uh, being on the board of trustees, he has responsibility for overseeing the health care of 58 million Americans. And uh, he uh, is a very serious guy. And I know he's very concerned about this sort of thing, as he is about the future of Medicare itself. You know, uh, some people, even today, before going to a Sanders approach, even today are so frustrated. Sometimes they go to their doctor and say, you know what, I just want a cash basis. Let's uh, sure. let's cut a deal. Yeah. This is a free market. I care about my health. I want control of my health. I'm going to pay you X amount. The doctor says, absolutely, because I don't have all that crazy paperwork to deal with. Let's just do a cash basis. And the service is great. Well, a lot of people are moving into the so-called, uh, what they call, uh, direct primary care arrangements. Uh, that's growing. Yeah. And, uh, of course, you, you have the uh, the Christian sharing ministries, which are also growing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, these are very serious uh, uh, these are very serious options. Well, I don't think uh, anyone in their right mind wants to see uh, 20% of their payroll going to a, a federal program. And I have never seen a federal program that's not inefficiently run in my life. Well, the argument here is is that, uh, you know, they will be efficient because they're going to uh, – they're going to cut those doctors and hospitals to the bone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. That means less uh, men and women will be going into the profession of being doctors. I think that is true. Uh, I think one of the things that really distinguishes the United States from uh, Great Britain, for example, is that we do, in fact, pay our physicians a lot more than they do on average. But the truth of the matter is is that uh, the the cost of medical education in the United States is enormous. Uh, it's not unusual for a young person who goes to Harvard or Stanford or the University of California or Hopkins, I mean, some of the best institutions in the country. It's not It's not unusual for them to have a debt, you know, of $150,000 or $200,000. It's, yeah. it's, not, it's not unusual. So when they go into residency and they start off, you know, working really hard uh, in residency, I mean, that's just the beginning of a career. They spend a good portion of their early years paying off this debt. Uh, my concern about the medical profession, though, is not their financial condition. I, I honestly, I mean, that's beside the point as far as I'm concerned. But the real issue is that uh, we have a system which has become so hidebound with regulation that doctors and medical specialists often feel they're on the receiving end of decisions made by other people. And um, it's not just the administrative cost or the overhead that is imposed on them by not only the government but also private insurance. It's the fact that they're constantly being told what to do, and they have a feeling uh, they have. Well, in fact, they feel correctly uh, that they are on the receiving end of other people's decisions, and they're losing their professional autonomy, and it is demoralizing them. And uh, we have got to figure out a way to break the back of that kind of. Uh, that kind of regulatory control. Uh, that's what I would like to see happen. I know the Trump administration is talking about this. 
but they have a, they have a ways to go in order to really start to improve the practice environment for members of the medical profession. Yeah. Now, today we've been talking with uh, Robert Moffitt, and he's Senior Fellow in Domestic Policy at the Heritage Foundation. He's written an article for the Daily Signal, well worth looking up. It's called, New Study Shows Huge Cost of Sanders' Medicare for All Plan. And Sanders, of course, is referring to Bernard Sanders, uh, a politician serving uh, in the United States Senate. Uh, he's from Vermont and age, uh, what, 76 years old, and he's just an outright socialist. Um, I sometimes, if I may take just a few more m- moments, Robert, um, what what's the difference really between a socialist like Sanders and an outright communist? Well, I mean, those phrases are often used, uh, you know, very, very uh, loosely. A socialist is one who believes in the government control over the means of production and distribution of goods and services in the economy. So that's what they believe in. Um, and in fact, the Sanders bill, S1804, which is the Medicare for All bill, is is a kind of a classic socialist uh, uh, legislative initiative. Uh, uh, communist, uh, people who believe in communism usually, uh, people who are devotees of Karl Marx, and believe that uh, history is on its way to a, a future society where classes will disappear. But that will only take place if, in fact, there's a proletarian revolution where the working class establishes total control over the society. And the working class, of course, in the communist version, is led by the Communist Party. Um, there are not that many communists in the classical sense left. Uh, there are a lot of socialists. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, but the point is, I think academic for most ordinary people. Uh, Venezuela is a socialist regime, and it's very authoritarian. Uh, it's uh, profoundly uh, restrictive of freedom, and it's also right now uh, a classic example of a basket case, uh, economic basket case, where people are actually fleeing the country because they can't get anything to eat. <laughs> I mean, you're basically looking at an economic collapse with 30% unemployment. Now, you know, I think the issue, it seems to me, is how much government control do you want over your life? And at the end of the day, whether it's fascism or national socialism practiced by Adolf Hitler and his team, or uh, some kind of so-called democratic socialism, in all cases, it's basically more power to the government and less uh, freedom for you in every case. Mm. You know, um, I help care for my dad. He's older now, and uh, fortunately, he's still in his his own home. But uh, seniors especially become vulnerable um, the older they get, and uh, it's a temptation. Let me put it that way. It's a temptation in your older years to become very socialistic because you feel very weak, you feel vulnerable, and you just want somebody to take care of you. Have you observed that with seniors? I don't. No, that's not my experience. I think uh, <laughs> I, it's not my personal experience. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I think generally they have a tendency to be more conservative than the general population. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when it comes to entitlements, when it comes to federal entitlements, they're almost uh, they're adverse to any kind of change, even if the change would really benefit them, uh, because they're simply afraid of change, a lot of sure. them. Sure. 
Sure. And uh, I understand that. I mean, you know, since I'm in that in that age group right now, <laughs> I get it. Yeah. But the point is, is that uh, the concern that I have is the fact that an awful lot of young people simply have no concept of what happened historically in the 20th century with the rise of socialism and its terrible consequences. I don't think they have a clue about what it is to be ordered about by a police state, which is ultimately what it is. We don't live in a police state. We shouldn't live in a police state. But socialism ultimately is a police state because you have to control people in order to do the kind of central planning that they have in mind. Yeah. We're a Christian group here, and so we, we love yeah. the, the God's law, you know, the Ten Commandments. One, one real simple one is an admonition that you shouldn't covet what your neighbor has. Uh, you know, if, if God blesses one person more than another, fine, that's great. I don't want what he has. Or uh, I shouldn't steal. I, I shouldn't say, well, I'm going to put laws in place that basically steal from one person and redistributes it to others. And on the basis of that, I could never be a socialist. Well, I think it's a very common view among Christians, because uh, even though early Christian communities shared in common, in many cases, as you know, uh, all of that was based on a voluntary basis. Right. I'm talking about the very early Christian communities in the first century A.D. Yeah. But... um, it is fundamentally incompatible with Christianity uh, to put a gun to somebody's head and say, in effect, you will do what we tell you to do regardless of the justice of it because we think it's right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, redistribution, you know, whether it's uh, uh, being promoted by Bernie Sanders or or a bank robber like Willie Sutton. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's ultimately the same thing in the end. And violating somebody's personal liberty and personal freedom. I'm glad you pointed out the fact that there's a there's a world of difference between voluntarily and personally sharing with your sure. neighbor versus big government coming in and, like you say, holding a gun to your head and saying, you will give me your wealth and I will distribute to someone else. That's a world of difference. It's a world of difference, and that's why it's it's fundamentally dishonest to appeal to the acts of the apostles you know, where the early Christian community says, okay, everybody, you know, from each according to their ability and to each according to their needs, and these small Christian communities in, in the Middle East. The truth of the matter is they're voluntary communities. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, as you know, uh, Christ does not condemn wealth. He just simply says, in effect, that it should not be abused. That, in fact, when wealth becomes idolatrous, that is when you uh, are in danger of losing your soul. And that is why the good Lord said that it's easier for uh, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter heaven. (laughs) The argument is he can't, you know, of course, as he says, all things are possible with God. But the point is, the point is, is wealth in and of itself is not an evil. No. It is the uh, worship of wealth that is an evil and it is an evil, and so is the worship of power. Mm. And the lust for power is the greatest threat, I think, that the Christian community faces. Yeah, oh, well The lust put. for power by the state. Well put. And uh, this thing of pitting one group of people against another, it's, it's the old divide-and-conquer strategy. Um, person A has 
a little more wealth than person B. Let's stir the pot and cause person B to hate person A so that we can yeah. we can force uh, societal change. That is as evil as the day is long. Yes, it is, because it makes envy and covetousness, as you pointed out, into a political principle. Yeah, right. If someone wants to read more about this sort of economics and really learn um, basically scriptural principles applied to economics, where can they go? Well, I don't <laughs> think, I mean, that's a big question. I know. <laughs> um I would say that, uh, you know, I mean, the only thing I can speak for is the Heritage Foundation. And we publish a lot of very good stuff. Uh, If you go to heritage.org and look under almost any of the issues you want to talk about, health care, taxes, budget, economy, that's all available, and it's really good stuff. Um, I think, though, that you're, you're asking a deeper question. And I'm not so sure I'm the best person to answer it, but, I mean, the fact of the matter is there have been, among economists and and writers, there's been some great Christian economists. Um, In fact, the Pope, uh, John Paul II, wrote an encyclical called Centenimus Animus, in which uh, he defends the free market and warns against what he calls the threat to personal liberty of the so-called social state. Uh, which is basically the preemption of all human activity by government officials. Wow. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. And um, what about that young person who's in school and um, maybe they don't have the opportunity of being homeschooled or going to a private Christian school, but they're kind of stuck in the public school system how do they maintain their sanity and not be sucked into this giant whirlpool of socialism? Well, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people are going to have to get their own, they're going to have to start to really uh, start to educate themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I think that's necessary because I think what has happened is the academic institutions, to a large extent, are so overwhelmingly Mm -hmm. leftist-oriented that people don't even hear. I remember I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who was teaching at Harvard, one of the best economists in the country, and she teaches in Harvard Business School, and she was telling me that in one of the Harvard economic classes, uh, she gave a speech, and it was about it was about health policy. And she told me, she said, the interesting thing is the students were amazed because they had never heard the arguments that she was making ever oh before. And you know, that's one of the top universities in, in, in the United States, if not the world. And that's kind of depressing. Yeah. Um, uh, I, there's, uh, in terms of open inquiry, I think uh, probably right now I would say. Uh, one of the best universities in the country would be the University of Chicago in mm. Illinois. Okay. Well, this has been enlightening. Uh, today we've been talking with Robert Moffat, and he's Senior Fellow in Domestic Policy at the Heritage Foundation. And, uh, Robert, it, it's a lot of fun. I, I appreciate talking with you. And, again, one more time, if someone wants to read more of your articles, where can they go? Just go to heritage.org and just look up any of the articles by me or any of my colleagues. Uh, the roster is pretty deep, and uh, we cover a lot of territory. <laughs> Foreign and defense policy, health education, welfare, housing, you name it. And uh, your article was published in the Daily Signal. Daily Signal, yes. 
That's a great little thing you can get in, in your uh, inbox every morning, the Daily Signal, and it has a variety of articles, all of them interesting. So, Robert Moffat, thank you very much for joining us today. Okay. Thank you. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.